Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Jeannie Fontana. Jeannie is the CEO of the TREAT California Initiative. TREAT is a statewide initiative that would create a $5 billion funding agency for psychedelic research, which has proven highly effective for conditions like PTSD and depression. Jeannie was a founding member of the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, which performs stem cell research, and she's also advocated on behalf of patients with Lou Gehrig's disease. To get the TREAT initiative on the ballot for November 5th, 2024, they need to collect about a million California voter signatures. So if you're hearing this and you live in California, I strongly urge you to get involved with TREAT. Jeannie and I talk about her background in medicine, toxicology, and biochemistry. We talk about how she got into psychedelic research and doing psychedelics herself. I talk about my own experiences with psychedelic drugs and much more. So without further ado, Jeannie Fontana. Okay, Jeannie Fontana, thanks so much for coming on my show. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here and it's a pleasure to meet you. Likewise. Thank you. You were recommended to me by Annika Harris, who has been on this podcast talking about consciousness and uh, the book she wrote about it a few years ago. And I've been looking to talk to somebody about psychedelics for a while and the potential for psychedelics to be used to treat mental illness and also for psychedelics to help non-mentally ill people, that is people suffering the, the kind of normal misery of, of everyday life, to become happier. And it's something I have a, a lot of questions and also some viewpoints based on experience about. But uh, I've been wanting to get someone on that is really, really an expert. And, and we'll get to the initiative you have in California to get the state to fund psychedelic assisted therapy. But before we get to that, I just want to get to know you a little bit. How did you come to be interested in psychedelic assisted therapy? And how did you then come to be at the forefront of this TREAT initiative in California? Uh, well, thank you for the question. And I uh, want to say hats off to Annika, too, uh, and her lovely book. Um, she's got a great uh, a voice and perspective and, and uh, I'm very fond of her and appreciate that she put us together. My uh, interest in history with where I'm standing right now is, is, is multifactorial and somewhat complicated. Um, but suffice it to say, I want to share with you that I'm standing here in this moment as a, a buildup of the many disparate accomplishments and achievements and efforts in my life. So how did I arrive at this particular moment in time and being interested in psychedelics? It's multifactorial. So I can share with you that I've always had a quest for knowledge, information, curiosity, why we think the way we think, who we are. I didn't really appreciate or understand the studying of consciousness at the time. My interest in college before there was even a degree of neuroscience was the biology of psychology. Mm -hmm. So it was psychobio and biochemistry. So, uh, you know, in my years, it was just the understanding of neurotransmitters at the time in the brain. Uh, so it started way back then. And then there were many movements. I grew up in the 60s and 70s. So I was subject to the cultural revolution, if you will, at the time, but also not knowing where I actually felt most comfortable in that space. When I saw a bunch of my friends and colleagues a little bit older than me acting odd to me while they were on psychedelics, it, it didn't feel comfortable to me. Mm -hmm. And I was scared of it too, because I ended up growing up in the era of, um, of a conservative household where quote unquote drugs were not something that you did. And then I was subject to the uh, dare to say no Nixon's and Reagan's um, 
what I call now propaganda, and it was an effective propaganda on me. And uh, I comment about the the frying pan of this is your brain on on drugs with the egg, you know, and I, I was like, oh my God, that was scary. <laughs> so, um, and I was a scholar athlete. So I, you know, I, did, I didn't have time actually to um, kind of go off the unbeaten path at mm-hmm. the time, even though I was so interested in it. So it's a little bit long-winded to tell you how I ended up where I'm at right now, except to share with you that I think it was really important to explain how I ended up with um, studying ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and how it provided a roadmap to where I'm at now with this treat initiative. So allow me to to go into a little detail. If yeah, you please, like. please do. Yeah. So um, when I was a young kid, I was fascinated with science. My mom went, had gone back to school and I was one of the kids that went with her to the classes. And she, she graduated from the first uh, physician's assistant class at UCLA. And it was back in the time when women really had to make a choice between having a career or having a family. And so she had the family, but then she also wanted, always wanted to work. And so she had a passion for medicine. So I was the kid that went with her to the graduate school classes and I was so interested and she would talk with me about describing, you know, clinical trials and stuff. So I, I, yeah. lo- I loved it. And so I thought I would become um, uh, a research scientist. And so I was blessed with incredible opportunities to go to the top academic schools and supported in my family to, to thrive academically as well as in sports. And so I wanted to become uh, a Nobel laureate and, you know, I got an MD, PhD and, and, um, it was love. I love learning. And to me, it's, it's, uh, especially in science and medicine, there's the curiosity of understanding how, at least on a molecular level, on a cellular level, how things work. It's just as fascinating to me as understanding the cosmos. So at the time you were getting your MD, PhD, did you still have a conservative attitude towards drug use? Yeah, very. Of course I drank alcohol and, you know, did the more socially accepted things, but no, I, I, I didn't do any drugs. And so, but when I finished all my training, which was quite extensive, I ended up getting married and having a couple kids in medical school and I had stepkids. And so I was actually quite exhausted. <laughs> that uh, I was become a neurosurgeon, and I just, I, I frankly, I needed sleep, and I couldn't, I couldn't tolerate it. And uh, and then when I, I ended up doing medicine, and um, when I finished, my mother was diagnosed. My beautiful mother, um, who was so fit and full of life, and mm. uh, was diagnosed with ALS. Mm. And I honestly didn't even remember what ALS was, except it was a line in my textbook at the time that it was something I thought, ooh, you, you, you want to get that. It was terrible. And so what ALS is, is it's, it's a disease that attacks the nervous system, a part of the nerves that control voluntary movement. And there's no known cause and, and there's no treatment. So here was my incredibly, I mean, it makes me upset still. I mean, it just... You know, when you get a death sentence from somebody that you love, mm-hmm. there are two reactions, I think, especially in the world of ALS, that people either run the other way because it's so horrific or you dive in and you want to do everything possible that you can to help. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, was the latter. Mm. And so in that, because of my training, I was looking for any disease modifying therapeutic is there was, there's, there was, there's no treatment and you just watch your loved one die a slow, agonizing, well, relatively slow, two to five years from time of diagnosis where they essentially become paralyzed in their bodies and their brains are intact. You know, it is just the most awful thing to watch happen and and to think that you can't do anything Mm -hmm. to help. So being blessed, I was able to travel the world and talk to different researchers about any kind of therapy that could possibly help. And I I didn't really care about understanding the mechanism of how it helped. Mm -hmm. I just needed to understand, could it help or, or, you know, to make sure that it didn't harm. So in doing so, I got involved with one of the world's best medical research institutes down in San Diego and uh, was supported with with working on some research projects for drug discovery for to look, to identify a therapeutic that could slow the progression of the disease down and i also helped open up a clinic for those patients who were studying i mean suffering from from als because you have to be able to care for them and their family members 
And then because I just am so blessed in this world, somebody had met me and said, oh, we're, we have arranged the first Senate hearing in Washington, D.C. To, to, to educate them about ALS. Would you please come? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, OK. So there I was from the first Senate hearing. And because of my degrees and because I had a passion, I was you know, turned into this spokesperson. And I figured out pretty quickly that you can grab somebody's attention and share a, an idea, a message like we need to take care of these people now, and 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 we we were able to, and so I I spent a couple of days in Washington D.C. informing the legislators there, and was impressed with that one that they would listen to, that they cared, and three most importantly, together with the ALS Association, uh, six months later, our bill was passed in an overwhelming bipartisan fashion, and I left thinking, wow. My one voice mattered Mm -hmm. and that I ended up participating in legislative change that affects the lives of tens of thousands of patients in perpetuity. And what was the legislative change? Yeah, we, 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 we requested that the disability waiting period, there's a mandatory waiting period for people who... Um, at the time, got ALS that were under the age of 65 who didn't qualify for disability insurance would have to wait two years before they got disability insurance. By that time, they're dead. Yeah. So that was, it seemed like an easy thing to have fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, but um, we all know in, in politics now that the, the easy, simple things that make sense don't always happen. Right. So um, I learned though that there are ways to make things happen in a positive way. And we went back seven more times and got seven more bills passed. And um, importantly, what I learned also was that uh, the funding for ALS was um, at the time minimal. And for the whole entire country, it was less than $4 million, which means that researchers don't go into the space because if there's no funding, they don't go into the space. So we as the ALS community were interested in increasing the funding so that we could get more researchers to get involved in it so we could start understanding the ideology. So it turns out that the Gulf War veterans had a twofold increased risk of ALS over the civilian population and that the pilots had a six-fold increased risk of ALS over the civilian population. Interesting. So we're like, hmm, that's really interesting. We should study that, right? Mm-hmm. So we marched right over to the Department of Defense and made this plea. And alongside us were at the time what is now called the Gulf War Syndrome. But the Gulf War vets were there complaining of symptoms that they had developed after returning from the Gulf War. And the government at the time wasn't able to acknowledge that these symptoms that these poor guys were having. So while I was lobbying in the Department of Defense to increase funding for the ALS military personnel so that we could study this kind of cohort, I also was familiar with the Gulf War veterans as they were also lobbying for the Department of Defense to increase funding. They are now recognized as having, it's a Gulf War syndrome. So um, in that experience, I learned a couple of things. One, we got our funding increased tenfold, right? So Mm -hmm. that was pretty cool. That made me feel empowered. And two, working with the vets, putting a voice, a collective voice together can affect change. And so that was some another interesting piece of, of my experience that has led me to what I'm doing today. So jumping forward just ever so slightly, a couple, five years from then, uh, while I was working at the Burnham Institute, this world-renowned research institute, the idea of stem cells had come up and we were more, I was more interested in not using stem cells to replace neurons in the neurodegenerative disease, but more importantly, to create a disease in a dish. Because right now we still can't sample human brain tissue without an invasive procedure, but you could create nervous tissue in a dish using stem cells. So that was very promising. And we had um, access to high throughput screening. We have with all these robotics, I could screen. And when you say disease in a dish, you mean create diseased brain tissue. Yeah. 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 We could create ALS, a model of ALS Mm -hmm. in in a tissue 
culture. And the reason why that's important is that you can, one, start looking for compounds that could change the course of the disease in a dish, as if sometimes some cells in a dish can translate to what's happening in the human body. But it's the tools that we have available. And to me, using human neurons over, say, a mouse model, which most of our research is predicated on, mm-hmm. There's few examples where what happens in a mouse translates into something very therapeutic in a human. Mm -hmm. So I was like, we need to bypass that part, right? So we need to go into human tissue. So unfortunately, unfortunately, in 2002, George Bush at the time was responding to some political pressure uh, about the right to lifers, of which I'm going to say haunts us today still, put a moratorium on funding for embryonic stem cell research. So it meant that the promise of this of this potential of this science uh, complained came to a complete halt, like stop. Because unless the federal government supports research money through what's the National Institutes of Health, which is the primary driver of basic research that we have in our country, which is actually one of the main industries that we have in our country, comes to a halt. So there was a force of nature in California that said, hey, wait a minute, the science here is too promising for us to not continue. And so there are a couple mechanisms in half of the states in our country that allow the citizens to come together and demand that the government respond to their needs. And we oftentimes do that when we vote for our politicians, in particular our presidents, but we can also do it on a state level. So in our state of California, this force of nature created something called a citizen-driven ballot initiative. And that means where the citizens can get together, write some legislation, qualify to get on the ballot, educate the voters of California to vote yes or no. So in this case, back in 2004, there was an initiative called the Stem Cell Initiative. And I was involved early on in educating the public about the benefits of stem cells to study diseases, to help come up with therapies and cures. I, at the time, did not think this bill would pass or proposition would pass because our economy was in such a great deficit, not dissimilar to what it is today. And so when I was talking to some of the politicians in Sacramento, I love to tell this story, said they'd say, this is really promising, interesting research. Um, but we can't pay our teachers, we can't pay our policemen and our fire department. Why should we support some very, very basic research? And at the time, I didn't have an answer because I believe we do need to pay our teachers and we do need to pay our fire department and our police department and so on and so forth. So, But what I learned pretty quickly thereafter was that it didn't matter really, honestly, what the politicians thought. It mattered what the citizens of California thought, and they approved the proposition. And in doing so, they created the first of the kind in the country, which was a $3 billion research funding agency. First of the kind. I was honored. Was that just for stem cells or for? That was just for stem cells, for embryonic stem cells. Yeah. And I was honored to serve as a founding board member of this agency that we were charged with creating an institute that would expedite, so speed up the process from basic research, the bench, to a therapy in Mm -hmm. patients. Um, Heretofore, normally 2000 the year 2000 timeframe, it took about 15 years to go from basic research to a therapeutic in the patient and cost on average between one to $2 billion. So the average is about one and a half billion dollars. So we were given $3 billion and charged with coming up with some therapies for patients within 10 years. So, so how do you expedite that process? So we did. We created a uh, first of a kind agency that ran more like an independent state agency than a typical government agency. And this is an important point that I want to revisit when I'm going to talk with you about TREAT. Um, Because we had some independence as a state agency, we were allowed to create a program um, that was not created before in other government agencies. So to that end, we had board members that were representative of all our great academic institutions, pharmaceutical companies, as well as patient advocates. And we came together to, to create Um, what ended up being quite a successful um, agency. So I can share with you that at the end of 15 years, we had two FDA-approved therapeutics 
nine fast-track and breakthrough therapeutics, and importantly, 60 about compounds that were deserving of further studying for potential therapies for patients. All deriving from that embryonic stem cell research. That's right. That's great. And so the same force of nature went back to the ballot in 2020 during the height of the pandemic. And some of my team members participated because you have to collect a number of signatures to qualify for the ballot. Of course, during lockdown, it's hard, you know, you have to go. These these are these people that sit in front of your markets or or shopping malls and say, would you please sign this petition? Mm Kind of hard during a pandemic. But our team was able to do, some of our team members were able to do that and we qualified for the ballot. And so in 2020, that big presidential election, the citizens of California approved an additional $5.5 billion for the stem cell agency to continue funding clinical trials because they were actually giving us a, a, a grade with how successful they thought we were doing. And to yeah. me, that was a grade of an A because the citizens, you know, saw that they put money in, even though it's not an increased taxpayer dollars, but it comes from the sale of California bonds. But the citizens approved that they, they voted yes on this. We delivered on the promise, which was expediting bench to bedside. We have therapies. And not only that, we have plenty more therapies that need funding to bring to the patients. And they approved, they approved it. So in my mind, if I compare the ALS example to the embryonic stem cell research example, the lesson I draw is a lesson I've seen all over the place, which is one of the most important things to do with science is to not politicize it. The moment it gets politicized, it instantly becomes harder to make progress. So the ALS, correct me if I'm wrong, not politicized. There is no right wing or left wing position on ALS. I think, you know, like when you go to Congress and you make the case, politicians presumably across the political spectrum are not fighting over having some perspective on the issue. So very quickly things can get done. Good things can get done. In the case of embryonic stem cell research, because that has implications for Christian beliefs about life at conception and so forth, automatically it gets more difficult. All these hurdles get put up and the timeline on coming up with a treatment increases by an order of magnitude, right? That's right. And this is obviously... Some people have made the point that one of the worst things to happen to climate change was Al Gore being the person to deliver the most famous initial he did volley in Inconvenient Truth. Yeah. But the fact that he happened to be a Democratic politician meant that that got coded as a left wing issue and then it got divided. Right. So one of the most important things with science is to somehow figure out how to introduce it to the public imagination without having a political dimension at all. You know, I would like to divert the conversation and talk about this for a moment because Mm. I don't think there is any, there's so many uh, destructive outcomes of our most recent rhetoric happening in our country, the political system. Um, And shockingly to me, I mean, it's given me a form of PTSD was when, you know, COVID um, hit the world and the way our country politicized it. Yes. I, I just could not comprehend how science got politicized and completely upended, Yeah, you know, at the cost of human life. I actually remember those first two weeks in March. It was about two weeks long where we were all just beginning to lock down and we were all, you know, at least I was reading article after article after article, trying to figure out what this thing was, how deadly it was, how much it spread. And I remember there was a golden era in a sense of about two weeks at most where there was no right wing or left wing take on COVID. It was just everyone trying to figure out what is true. And I remember thinking to myself and talking with my friends, what if we treated climate change like this? What if we treated all these other scientific mm-hmm. topics where, you know, there was a time where I could read an article from the New York Times. I could, and I could go on to read an article from Fox News and mentally I was not having to unspin anything. Right. And then all of a sudden right. it got politicized right. and, right. and from then on it became a, a total shit show. I, I, I agree. And I'm still reeling 
from this. And I think all, a lot of us are in our country. And part of what I'm trying to do with the Treat Institute is to bring back some common sense, some common human connection through this is that we all experience emotions. It's, it's part of the human condition. Uh, some experience depression, anxiety, PTSD. It is not political. It is a human condition. And how we can come together to solve the problem is not political. It's not divided like that. And, and uh, it is a way for me to manage the mayhem and anxiety that I feel when I'm looking out at the rhetoric that is happening in our country and, and the world. It is overwhelming to think how incomprehensible it is to me. And so I say, okay, there's one area that I can focus on, an important area, the sense of well-being, mental health and well-being amongst us as human beings. And if I can focus on that and improve that and focus on the good of that, that that's my contribution to help calm down again Mm -hmm. this cacophony of, I don't even know what the words are. Yeah. So before we get to psychedelics, your experience expediting research on stem cells, what did that teach you in terms of what are the barriers slowing research down? Is it overregulation? Is it like, what, what are the things that you had to maneuver around in order to do things more quickly? Yeah. So it's a great question. So I've learned uh, several things and it's multifactorial. Uh, like all complicated things are. So there's no one answer to know that. I think the approach is to work with the existing system. I don't see any kind of revolution happening where everything's going to get thrown out and we start all over. We have systems. Some of them work really well, actually. When you take a moment back and look at the big picture, I mean, we, we you know, we're, we're doing okay. It's how to reduce the amount of bureaucracy and rhetoric around bureaucracy and then streamline through that. So my experience working as a, in a state agency, my work as an advocate for patient advocacy on the federal level and the local level has taught me that it still comes down to human communication, how to connect with a person and tell a story, how to be prepared have a thoughtful plan, it's cost-effective, streamlined, all those things. You have to do the work. There's no way around being prepared and then communicating in, a, in an effective way. So that's a sort of a hard way, of 30,000 foot perspective, but an important one nonetheless. So bringing together really competent people, having a plan, having an ability to adjust your plan, you know, just because you set this path, you know, and there's boulders in the way, doesn't mean you stop, you know, you figure out how to walk around the boulder or go through the boulder or whatever. You have to adjust and modify and move forward, be aligned with, with a mission and what the goal is. There's it's so much to unpack in, in, in yeah. that question. Yeah. Um, your comments about working within the system reminded me a few months ago, I read Al, uh, Alfred Hoffman's book, LSD, My Problem Child, Mm -hmm. which is a famous book from the Swiss Mm -hmm. chemist who accidentally discovered LSD and saw that it had therapeutic potential. And there's a scene in the book, there may be two scenes, in fact, where he meets with Timothy Leary, who people will have heard of, was the Harvard professor and radical during, I guess, the 70s mainly, who was more or less advocating putting LSD in the water supply. You know, he was a radical. He thought that everyone should drop out and do acid. And he was willing to, yeah. Yeah. What was was the famous? Tune in and drop out, something like that. Yeah, it was was like turn off, tune in, turn on, tune in, drop out, something like that. And he apparently he had a meeting with, uh, with Hoffman, dinner or something, they ran into each other and they had this huge argument. And it was almost this, you know, Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X style disagreement where Hoffman very strongly felt that we had to work through the system. Mm -hmm. We don't want to spook Mm -hmm. the authorities Mm -hmm. by putting LSD in the water supply, Mm -hmm. by having 
teenagers do it in non-therapeutic settings mm-hmm. and have horrible news stories of, which there are, of people going off the rails and people getting killed and people killing themselves by accident on these substances. Because if we do that, the administrative and police state is going to com- crack down on these drugs, schedule one them, and we'll lose generations of possible research. Timothy Leary had a different perspective. He said, we need to liberate the world right now. We need everyone to do this LSD as soon as possible. We can't wait for the red tape. We can't, we just have to be radical about this. And I think Hoffman ended up being right in that Nixon and Reagan, you know, began this war on drugs where psychedelics, which done properly are relatively harmless relative to some other drugs, ended up getting schedule one. And, and the, you'll know more about this than me, but like the, the research that's been able to be done has only really been what over the past maybe 20 years at most? At most, yeah. Yeah. So can you speak a little bit about the the history of like when we have been able to start research on substances like LSD and, and psilocybin? Yeah. So first of all, you bring up a really good point. And I think it's one that is uh, reflected uh, many times throughout history, right? Where you start having cultural changes. And I think you have to appreciate the times uh, that were happening then, back in the 60s, actually, in, in response to um, the Vietnam War. There was a cultural change. Women were given um, the first time to have reproductive control over their bodies. So there was change that was happening. And I, I think we're in feeling something in our current times, right? There's um, such dissatisfaction with the system. And a lot of it is certainly very reasonable, but the way to go about that change is, is one that is challenging. You know, do you have this revolution and, you know, throw everything out and try to start over or do you work within the system and modify it? And I don't know the right answer. And I don't think any of us know the right answer. I think we can look back in history and say in some circumstances it worked well in other circumstances, it didn't work well. We can talk about the civil war in our own country. And did, what did that really change? And it did change some things, but things are still the same. So in terms of, um, we can talk about psychedelics specifically, because that's my new passion and, and drive. You know, it's really, I'm, 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 I say this repeatedly because it's, it's so true. I'm, I'm sitting here because I'm sta- standing on the shoulders of some truly brave and extraordinary people who pushed the science forward in spite of the tremendous restrictions, in spite of not having any acceptance in the academic community to do this type of research. And, you know, being in the academic world, it's like being a part of a club and you you conform. And if you're not conforming, you are also viewed very negatively. So these researchers that risk their careers, their reputations to explore this medicines and also seeking funding from philanthropists and the philanthropists oftentimes would dictate really the course of which way the science would be studied because they have an interest, right? So I just, again, want to honor the many people um, that have dedicated their careers to pushing the science forward um, and including the clinical trial results that came out of our top academic institutions in Johns Hopkins and NYU, Yale, UCLA. And in the last couple of years, you may have noticed that a lot of our other top academic institutions have opened up divisions of psychedelic science, research, and consciousness. Mm -hmm. So it's... um, because of the research that was done and that the just, and I still say this, jaw-droppingly positive preliminary trial results for the treatments of these issues that are otherwise not treatable, mm-hmm. PTSD, depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, anorexia. I mean, the list can go on and on and on. Yeah. So let's talk about these specific substances and what they're useful for. The one... So have have you done psychedelics yourself? I have. Yeah. Which ones? I've I well first of all I've had to leave the country um to explore these same medicines because they're illegal and I'm not interested in in breaking the law and getting arrested for things like that. So but in doing so I'm very curious. So I've I've tried let's see Mescaline, I won't use peyote because it's endangered. So so mm-hmm. mescaline is the derivative of that. Ayahuasca, 
lot, lot of psilocybin. Let's see. This one called Rappé, which I did. Rappé? Yeah. I haven't heard of that one. Yeah. It's, a, it's used in the it? Amazon. It, it, R-A-P-E, and there's an accent over oh, the A's. Okay. It's, um, it's not one I really enjoyed very much at all. It's Why a, not? It's, a, uh, it's got a tobacco. It's, it, honestly, it felt so neurotoxic to my brain. But While you were on it, it felt well. The, the, when you first get it, it, it's something that the Amazonians uh, they probably did it elsewhere in the world, but I'm familiar with it in Amazon, mm-hmm. where they take some bark and the tobacco and they make this concoction and then they blow it up into your nostril. And uh, so it's from the tobacco plant. It's part tobacco plant. It's not. Okay. It, it's a, it's a concoction. Right? I see. And uh, anyway, so I've, so I've tried those. I have yet to try, um, and I'm very interested in doing it. Although I'm. I want to be under supervised supervision is, is Ibogaine um, and straight DMT. And the reason for my concern over both Ibogaine and DMT is that it can cause loss of consciousness. And when you have loss of consciousness, you know, you, you can have problems with um, airway protection and mm-hmm. convulsions. And so I'm not interested um, in having that. That to me is somewhat of a danger. I understand people can do it and they can be very careful, but to me, uh, safety is is an important issue to me, and mm-hmm. I'm very I'm very interested in safety. So um, I'm intrigued to try them myself because I've read so much about the positive impacts of these medicines, but I think they need to be done under medical supervision. So what about ketamine? I have tried ketamine, and for me, ketamine um, did not. I didn't. I felt like I was on a Disneyland ride. I had right. zero. Um, insight in emotional insight, but I, I appreciate that a lot of people are benefited from it, um, which is another reason why um, I want the, this uh, initiative to go through is we want to create funding to study the biology of each individual. So there's different receptors and mm-hmm. di- different receptor profiles in the person so that we hopefully with enough data can determine like, for instance, you, may, if you come in, let's say, and you have some, let's just pick an example, you have some major anxiety issues. I have an idea that one medicine is not going to be the treatment for you. Mm-hmm. But, but by understanding some of your biology, we may find that we can introduce you to, say, a heart opener, which is an MDMA type um, medicine, and then following it with some, maybe a psilocybin mm-hmm. or a DMT or some other. So, but we won't be able to determine how best to treat treat you without understanding some of your biology. Right. An area that I'm particularly excited about is addressing a couple things is one, these medicines address the why. And right now our medical system with few exceptions address symptoms, right? You know, antibiotics, of course, addresses the why, but, you know, we treat in terms of um, mental health issues, we treat symptoms, not the why. So we give one pill to treat all symptoms, the same pill, the same dose, to the same, to a very amount of people, regardless of your age, sex, race, weight, you know, to me, that just doesn't make sense. And so I think in time that we will have what we know is the beginnings of personalized medicine, but to be able to do it on a scale that's cost effective. And, you know, because what I'm focusing on is improved patient outcomes, cost effective and accessible to all. So that requires a lot of data gathering to figure out how yeah. best to approach that. Right. What I've learned from doing psychedelics myself and having lots of friends that have done psychedelics is that they really do affect everyone differently. And, and it would be great if people were able to predict based on my neurobiology or something else that I would respond well to one as opposed to the other. So the one I have most experience with is MDMA, which I've done many times in my life and I've done it in uh, some of the more typical like rave or party settings, but mostly I've done it intentionally with friends or loved ones, just like having a conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's the scenario in which I did it the first time Mm -hmm. and the scenario where I feel it has the most benefits. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I experienced a kind of opening up and a self-love that was extraordinarily healing. And Mm -hmm. so when I heard the first results coming that MDMA had incredibly large positive effects on PTSD, that was completely unsurprising to me because just my having taken it with good friends, even in a a non, technically non-therapeutic setting, but effectively replicating a therapeutic setting and just like take it with a friend and talk about your past and, you know, what, what hurts you in life, what, 
what hangups you have. I actually saw, and I think I can say confidently, it's the only drug I've ever taken where months after that experience, I still felt better, Mm -hmm. which was strange to me at the time and and very and so I, I did a deep dive into like Rick Doblin and Maps who speaks very eloquently about the mm. potential of MDMA and has done a lot of that research. And interestingly, MDMA, have you done MDMA? Yeah. So as you know, it's very different than most of the other psychedelics you were mentioning in that it doesn't make you it doesn't quite scramble reality right. in that same way. You feel quite lucid, but just right. much more right. loving of yourself and of others. And so, I mean, this seems to me the, one of the most promise, promising treatments for PTSD. And I know there was just another study that came out from a, a pharmaceutical company, I believe, that had good results uh, in, in MDMA for PTSD. So can you talk a little bit about you know, what do you know about MDMA in relation to PTSD? What's the state of that research? And um, would the uh, would the TREAT initiative be covering that uh, as well? So yes to all of the above. Um, I am sitting here in large part because of the MAPS trial results. Mm. I started following it. I had not used any psychedelic medicine, so I was looking at it strictly from um, the therapeutic results. And I have rarely seen in my career um, something with such positive results as I saw in, in those in those trials. To clarify to your listeners, I'm sure they may know, but in some that don't, you know, MDMA is not what we call a true hallucinogen. Uh, hallucinogen. Um, it is an amphetamine mm-hmm. uh, that has empathic qualities to it. So meaning that that feeling that you said of, of love, I think what these medicines do and, and including MDMA is it creates what we, what I call, what we all call is, 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 a, is what we call a safe container that you're amongst friends and loved ones where you feel safe enough to explore some of those emotions that you don't otherwise feel comfortable exploring. Right. Um, and I have witnessed it many times and it's, it's such beautiful, it's a gift to be able to witness somebody allowing them to reveal their, their pain, their insecurities, the, the reasons for the anxiety that they didn't even really know that they had, mm. but when they had in this medicine space, were able to, to feel it. Mm. And also in the presence of others who are just non-judgmental, just there to support them and encourage them while they go through that is one of the greatest gifts that I've had in my life. Right. And how this changes, make, how this creates long lasting change is so interesting. And I think we need money to, to do research on it, to understand the mechanism a little bit better, because the more we can understand it, the more we can optimize it for the, to improve the human condition. Let's see, what more can I answer on that? There's, there's, there's so much to dive into. Yeah, no, it's, I think one thing I remember distinctly realizing when I first did MDMA was that every time I had ever disliked somebody else, especially when someone just sort of gets on your nerves and you can't put your finger on why it is, almost in every case, it's because they're exhibiting something that I dislike in myself. And I remember just having that realization all of a sudden and that realization persisting when I was no longer on MDMA. And that would help me check myself when someone was pissing me off or getting on my nerves for some reason. I was like, I'd be like, well, no, actually they're exi- they're doing this thing. And I hate that I do that, or I hate that I want to do that, but I'm too afraid to. And so that's manifesting as this guy gets on my nerves. And it, it's a very useful way to reframe your, um, you know, your relationships with other people. It's very wise of you to acknowledge that mm-hmm. and to voice it and mature. I mean, wise and mature kind of go together to me. And so I want to shout out to you, hats off to you at such a young age. (laughs) I never would have had that realization if not for doing MDMA, or at least it may have taken me 30 or 40 years to, and it may not have sunk in with quite the same power. Yeah. So I'm curious if you can describe to me, I mean, how is it that you at your young age were able to, to acknowledge that association that, you know, the quality that somebody was irritating to you was something that you didn't like in yourself. How did you put that together? Well, because when I was on MDMA, 
suddenly all of my self-hatred melted away. And I think I have a, I think like a normal, pretty within a normal range of dislike of self at like a resting stage. I think most people- I think it's universal. Yeah, I think it's universal for, for most psychologically normal people, let's say. And you don't even realize it if, you're, if your life is going well enough, you don't necessarily realize it because you're a fish in water. But something like MDMA and other psychedelics are the equivalent of just draining all of the water mm-hmm. out. And then you realize by comparison- how you're not feeling this way every day, right? I'm not, you know, just a complete acceptance of all of the quirky or different aspects of myself as totally valid and just having no desire to change myself and I am just fine the way that I am. That is not how I go around typically feeling, right? (laughs) So when you feel that way, you notice the difference. And what I notice is that in that condition of self-love, it was impossible to dislike anyone else. Like all my dislike for other people also melted away as a result of liking myself. So I made the connection that at the root of a lot of my dislike of others, especially others who have not done anything specifically wrong to me, was that dislike of myself. I think that's a reflection of your keen intellect. Maybe so. <laughs> I, I don't think a lot of people figure that out as quickly as you did. Mm. And then I'm curious to know... You know, I have a hypothesis that, you know, the a lot of our behavior, our habits, you know, we get triggered from something and we respond a certain way, right? Mm-hmm. How how have you, do you, first of all, do you recognize that behavior is, is habitual? Oh, yeah, that habits are incredibly powerful. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. So how was it that you were able to change your habit of not responding negatively to somebody who was irritating you? I think in truth... I was so interested in that insight that I enjoyed noticing it in everyday life. And so like when I would be irked by someone, I would try to say, what did he or she do that irked me? And then try to make the connection with the specific thing that I dislike in myself or that I envy that they they did that I would want to do. And so that just became interesting to me to do for, for many months after I did MDMA. Yeah, because I... So again, I think it's really reflective of who you are as a human being, because I think oftentimes we get into kind of an automatic response, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and you, you have the ability pretty quickly, it sounds, to immediately recognize that when something was irritating you, you could pause and ask, this, ask yourself the question. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, or, or, more or less. Or did so. you still get irritated and then take a moment and then reflect? Yeah, no, it's still getting irritated. And then that irritation became the trigger for, okay, what is it about? Why am I irritated by yeah. this? It's not, there's nothing wrong with them. Yeah. They are doing something that I hate that I also do or something like yeah. that. Yeah. See, now I have found the same thing. So to me, uh, I was mentioning, I was explaining this to somebody recently. I was like, I still get triggered. Mm-hmm. I, I still react emotionally to it. But the difference is, is now that I can recognize that I'm reacting emotionally to it and I can ask myself the question, mm-hmm. how do I want to allow this reaction to impact me in this moment for the next hour, the next day, the next year? And it's that gift of insight, I think, is maybe what we can call it, mm-hmm. or some sense of agency over how I choose to respond. And it's, is that similar to what you're describing? Absolutely. Yeah. So what is that? And then I think hmm, it would be so interesting to be able to understand that from a neurochemical perspective, mm-hmm. right? And, and so that's, you know, MDMA, that's the one that I've had the most positive results from and the one that I feel I can recommend to a friend with the caveat of, you know, do it safely and all that. And I can confidently recommend it to almost any friend and feel that I've made a good recommendation. And I've never had the experience of telling someone to do it. And then they did it and they said, why the hell did you recommend that, man? That was a horrible experience. Mm -hmm. So I I haven't had that with Mm -hmm. MDMA. Mm -hmm. Now with the other psychedelics, with LSD and psilocybin, I tend to not recommend in a blanket way that people do it because I've done both. I've done LSD twice and psilocybin more times. And I've had both great and horrible experiences on them. Uh, And the horrible experiences colloquially are called bad trips, right? And even that really doesn't do justice to how bad a bad trip can be. It's like, it can be bad, especially in the wrong setting, 
in a way that words fail to capture, right? It can be like evil for your mind, right? And so I've had some of those bad experiences. And because of that, I've never wanted to be responsible for recommending them to somebody and that God forbid they have a bad trip. Right. Uh, and it can be difficult to control in a, if you don't know much about it and you're not in a clinical setting. So it leads to the question, what in psychedelic assisted therapy what does a therapist do to help a person having a bad trip? Yeah. So first of all, it's, it's a great lead up, right, to the use of these medicines. And I want to highlight that um, the true psychedelics, so LSD, psilocybin, DMT, ibogaine, mescaline, um, affect the brain differently, very differently than MDMA. MDMA is an amphetamine. Ketamine is a disassociative. They're not even in the same class of medicines. The true psychedelics, I think, need to be treated with the utmost respect. Um, the altered state of consciousness that it elicits um, can lead the unprepared um, person into a more destabilized position of what you're calling a bad trip. From my perspective, with in, with the guided therapy, there's no such thing as a bad trip. So from my perspective, it's educating the person. There's a lot of work that goes in before one even experiences the medicine in the medicine space. There's work when, before and a lot of work after so that the medicine space is a tool. It's sort of say a, a, a flashlight to shine some light in some dark areas that we don't know what we don't know. And some very uncomfortable emotions can come up. If you are prepared, if you are educated and how to deal with those emotions before you go into that space, it helps facilitate getting through it more positively. Okay, so we can make an analogy of driving a car. You can take a 10-year-old um, on a field and a farm where there's nothing to hit or get harmed and you can teach a 10-year-old how to drive a car. No big deal. You would not take that same 10-year-old in a car and put it in the metropolis city here in LA, mm -hmm. right? You have driver's ed, you have driver's training, you take a test, you, you, know, you learn, and then you start out slowly and then you get more comfortable driving in metropolis. Same. Mm -hmm. I view these medicines in the same way. The work with the therapist to help you understand some of these issues that are coming up, to educate you when these difficult emotions come up, how to respond to them. The therapist is there with you, helping you. You are not alone in this so, um, to help you work through these challenging emotions so that the real healing can occur. And that's just the beginning. The rest of it um, gets incorporated into one psyche. The healing is working continually with the therapist and oneself in journaling and meditation and reflection so that real positive change can happen. Like you have felt with the MDMA, mm -hmm. this sort of immediate you know, self-love and dissolution of the negative chatter in your mind. You know, it's sort of like a snapshot into, you know, how positively can affect. I believe that the psychedelics can do that and even more so, but done safely. Mm -hmm. So and we need more studies to, we need funding to support these kinds of studies, to look at the different therapeutic paradigms, to try to triage, if you will, what kind of person. So depending upon your emotional history, like I can come into the psychedelic space because I've done all this work most of my life, mm -hmm. you know, in therapy and reading, help and introspection, and could probably jump into a graduate course of psychedelic therapies mm -hmm. than say somebody who's very new and who's never like, we want to be able to bring this to the public. I mean, to imagine taking somebody from South Central LA who has had no experience or exposure, education at all, mm -hmm. and having this experience yeah. with this I'm like absolutely not right you know you need to you need to inform the person educate the person and, and guide the person and care it's like caring for the person so um, it's why I think it's really important that we treat these medicines with the utmost respect there's something there too about how the ancient civilizations and maybe not so ancient civilizations you know ongoing tribes that use these tend to use them in very specific ritual contexts that's right with rather 
strict norms about, first of all, how often they're used, when they're used, who they're used on, and who is in charge of curating the person's experience. That's right. They're not used the way that, frankly, American teenagers use them. That's right. Yeah. And I often reflect on, you know, there's so much wisdom, right, in what we'll call the ceremonial <laughs> and traditional use of these medicines. And and that is done in a defined environment, a defined societal hierarchy. It's accepted. Everybody in the community is is part of the experience. How is that going to translate into American life? Mm -hmm. And I scratched my head a lot on that one. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking like, wow, that's a big disconnect. Yeah. And in large part, because our society is so disconnected from one's emotions, right? And we're disconnected from community. We, we, we have over the course of my lifetime, we've gone from, I used to have a neighborhood where I knew all my neighborhood school, my friends, and we would, at the end of school, we'd all come out and meet in the neighborhood and hang out and play till the lights came, got dark, and we would go home. And, you know, we don't have that. I mean, I, I have five kids and I moved into a neighborhood thinking my kids could go out and meet their friends. And they, I'm like, we're all the kids and they're all scheduled to do it. Mean, you have to make you know, appointments to make play dates with your kids. And I was like, yeah. wow. So there's this disconnect. And so, and disparate amount of education and there's so much. So I'm very consciously aware of how to thoughtfully bring these medicines to the American society, which is so disparate from the traditional societies that have, you know, used and and these medicines for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So there's big leaps there. Definitely. Traditional societies that use these, presumably, they accept the tradition of how it's used because it's the tradition, right? And in America, the it's really, I guess it's more of liberal America is more open to these drugs to begin with. And there is a sort of anti-tradition element to that, right? Because um, in some way we have to invent from scratch what has already been done in these traditional contexts, right? We have to create the rules. We have to create the space. We have to teach the therapists. We have to create it from the bottom up where in these other societies, they have the accrued wisdom of thousands of years of trial and error and all of that embodied into how they do it. So in some sense, we, we're, we're sort of like creating from the ground up a quasi-spiritual traditional context for these drugs, right? And, right? and in some way, we don't, we lack a bit of the language to do that. We, we have the language of medicine and the language of therapy, which is the best language actually we have in a secular context, but we don't have the language. We can't really use the language of God or spirituality quite in that way. That's right. right. And that's another reason why I'm so excited with what we're doing at the Treat um, Treat California Initiative to create the Treat Institute, because Mm -hmm. I want to build um, just what you're saying and to incorporate Western the best of Western medicine and science with Eastern, the best of Eastern philosophies Mm -hmm. and create a new narrative around mental health and well-being. We we will have a division focused on well-being because for me personally, I've been blessed. I haven't been quote unquote diagnosed with depression, anxiety, you know, but the sense of well-being that I have acquired through hard work I keep on wanting to emphasize this. This is not you take some journey and all of a sudden everything's peachy keen. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of hard work. But in this hard work, my sense of joy in my everyday life is is just I could never have dreamt that it would be as wonderful as it is. Mm. And then I have found a project that is aligned with my heart, body, soul, mind um, to serve others. And there's just, just, it's talk about a dopamine hit in my brain and an oxytocin. It's just, I get flooded with it Mm. to think that I can help. If I can help one other person, let alone thousands, let alone millions of people to incorporate some self-compassion, right? Some tools to deal with these just complicated emotions that make up the human condition. You know, to me, it's like, wow, I'm so honored. So are there any legal challenges uh, still to surmount, given that these are all still controlled substances, right? 
Yeah, so I'm not sure what your question is. So how does one research control substances and does one come into conflict with the, the FBI or the DEA ever? And, and yeah, so again, working within the system. So I view this as the long game. I view this as the analogy of climbing Mount Everest, mm-hmm. right? You don't just say, I want to climb Mount Everest and put on your jogging shoes and run up Mount Everest, right? Mm-hmm. You don't, you have to prepare, you know, there's stages and you have each stage, it's got its own issues and you got to get to each stage. So it's important to run large scale clinical trials to look at safety and efficacy, because while we believe that these medicines are safe, and I think there's good data to support that they're safe, we won't know until we run large scale clinical trials where we can track safety over time, Mm -hmm. right? We believe these medicines to be effective. The preliminary trial results show that they are, but relatively speaking, they're small trials. We were talking about 340 patients. You know, we will run trials on 3,000 to 30,000 patients, and we will track this information over time and hopefully over decades. So while we collect this information, we work with the FDA and also educating the public as and the public helps build the political will for Washington to help change some of the legislation for the nation. So my thoughts are while California, we're the fourth largest economy in the world, we oftentimes are leaders in things like this. We will be the leader in how we are addressing mental health, addiction, and pain. And we will show that we're safe, we're efficacious, we're cost-effective. And we get access to all as a model that we can show the federal government. Mm -hmm. The federal government then will also have the political will because I'm going to presume that many of these studies will be positive. There's not one person on this planet that hasn't suffered from depression, anxiety, PTSD that will want some of these therapies so that there will be a change in... in, um, acceptability um, on, on the federal level. So when we run these clinical trials and get FDA approval, they get approved for everybody in the country, mm-hmm. just like MAPS is doing with MDMA. Mm-hmm. You know, it's anticipated that it you know, will be approved hopefully in 2024, 2025, you know, fingers crossed, which means MDMA becomes available to all citizens, right? But who can pay for it? So in addition to what we want to do is we want to create a model so that is accessible to all. Right now, these medicines are only accessible to the rich. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a problem. Okay. So how can listeners to this podcast support TREAT? Thank you for asking because we are, we're launching a campaign right now. So please go to uh, TREATCALIFORNIA.org is our website. And we are in the process of collecting Interested parties, you have to opt in so that we can send you information when we're ready to collect signatures. Mm -hmm. So let me briefly just share with you, in order to qualify for the ballot in California, uh, I submit legislation to the general attorney's office who posts the legislation publicly for a month, after which we will incorporate some of the comments into our legislation. And then we're receiving something called a titled in summary, of which we are an official initiative. Mm -hmm. After that time, we have only 180 days to collect 1 million signatures in California from registered voters. Those signatures have to be validated and verified. And if they are, then we become an official proposition And then we will be on the ballot on November 5th of 2024. Mm -hmm. So in order to do that, we need two things. We have to qualify for the ballot because that's the opportunity. If we don't qualify for the ballot, this opportunity of creating this $5 billion funding agency, which is necessary to build the psychedelic ecosystem, won't happen. So what can your listeners do? Go to our website right now and opt in so that when we're ready to ask you to go sign a petition, uh, we can send you that information. Secondly, if you could donate, like two Starbucks coffees worth of money, you know, minimum of $10, because the average cost to run a ballot initiative in California is $30 million. And uh, we're going to come in for a tenth of that because of the people that care about this and are we're moving mountains to make this happen. And it's mm-hmm. just so exciting. 
So, so do you have to live in California in order for that opt-in to really matter? Uh, we need, yes, we need the citizens of California to sign the petition. Okay. Now, anybody around the country can donate to the campaign because we feel that getting this initiative passed you know, is like the rising tide for all interested parties in the psychedelic community, because we have the monies now to build the infrastructure, Mm. right? So we will run clinical trials. We will train the therapists. We estimate that we need to train and certify license and oversight of around 200,000 therapists, right? We need to spend money on educating. Not only do we educate in the academic institutions, including all the way going down to grade school about how to deal with mental health, we spend money educating the public. I think it's really important to change the narrative around mental health issues. Mm -hmm. It's time to change the narrative. And then access to care is incredibly important. So we will be opening up clinics throughout the state. We will be going in the underserved communities that need it most and who get the least amount of care. So all these things uh, bring in disparate industries, different parties that are caring about this. All of this happens because we're, we're bringing in a large funding source, right? And whenever you bring in money, you know, it's like chum in the water with fish. All the fishies come in, they want part of it and they want to help out. <laughs> yeah. So um, the country participates in this. And then I actually believe the world does too, because um, if these studies continue to be as positive as they, the preliminary studies show they are, this will change the way we practice um, medicine in the world. Okay, Jeannie Fontana, thank you so much for coming on my show. Thank you. It's just been a pleasure and and just an honor to meet with you and share with you. Best of luck. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.